0: Welcome to another edition of the Law and Gospel devotional. My name is Eric Sorensen. I'm a pastor at Hillside Church in Roxbury, New Jersey, as well as a contributor to 1517 in numerous ways. It's good to be back here with you. Today as each week we take some time to look at a certain passage of scripture, usually from the upcoming series of lectionary texts, to see what God's two words have to say to us. And to do that, usually we'll we'll do sort of a brief review of all the upcoming passages and see how they connect and then do a deep dive into one of those passages. This week we'll be looking at the epistle text found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you were with me last week, you know we went over 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and it just so happens that the lectionary continues that. So uh, without any delay, let's go ahead and pull up our slides here and do a little digging into what's happening this third Sunday after Pentecost. Well, if I could sort of narrow down what uh, these passages are all about, it's about sort of God's secret way of growing his church, the sort of secretive way that he chooses to work in the world, often in a way that's contrary to what we might expect the God of the universe to work like. And what I've chosen to illustrate this Well, it's a picture, uh, what you're looking at here is a picture of a bamboo forest in which those bamboo trees are about 90 feet tall or so. That's about how tall they can get. But the interesting thing about bamboo uh, trees to me is that they typically take four or five years of watering every day and, and tending to every day in the ground with actually no signs of growth at all. It doesn't look like it's doing anything. And then after that four or five year period, it grows rapidly out of the ground and it doesn't take but a few weeks for it to grow to its full height. So it's almost like you can see it growing before your eyes. But but if you were to look at it for that period of time beforehand, it would seem terribly unimpressive. Well, the way God chooses to work a lot of the time in fact does look unimpressive and that's what a lot of these texts are about today or for this upcoming sunday so in the psalm you have the contrast of those who followed the way of wickedness as opposed to those who walk in the counsel of god and we're told that those who walk in the counsel of god are like a tree that's planted by streams of water and of course the illusion there is or the picture that's being created is that it's something strong and sturdy and steady uh, rock solid and yet at the same time if we look at the ways of the wicked and the way that some uh, it, oftentimes they seem to prosper it might not feel like that even as we're going through life the other passages really kind of illustrate that for us well Ezekiel 17 through 24 is all about sort of well God's people being conquered and then God out of that sort of mishap and, and them being defeated him promising to to grow once again out of the smallest shoot of the ground, something totally unexpected that eventually will tower over all other trees. As he says in verse 24 of Ezekiel 17, I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken and I will do it. And I can't help but think of, you know, a tree growing in Brooklyn, because if you were to walk at least the busier streets of Brooklyn, you wouldn't expect such a thing to happen. But I can vouch for it. It does happen. I've been there many, many times. matter of fact, some of the most beautiful parks in all of New York City are in Brooklyn, but that's a story for another time. Uh, and then you get to the gospel text, which will probably be preached on by a number of pastors this Sunday, and that is all about this hidden way of God's kingdom working. It, it, we're told we're, it, the illustration that's given to us is the illustration of a sower who is planting seed, but doesn't seem to see any effect for a long time, and, and that's most um, certainly shown in the parable of the mustard seed. Frankly, one of my favorite parables in all of the Bible. It says in verse 30 of that passage, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade and of course the picture picture I've shown for you is also one of my favorite pieces of art from Van Gogh simply called the sower and the reason I like it so much is because the sower is faceless he's not important in this scenario what the artist is telling us is what's most important is the seed that he is sowing and we know from the rest of the scriptures that that seed is the word of God nonetheless a lot of the time it's not gonna look terribly impressive. A lot of the time it's not gonna seem like it's growing at all. But like that bamboo tree, indeed God is using his work and word and will not bring it back void. He will accomplish his his purposes. And we definitely see that taking place in our epistle passage today that we'll dive into, which is found in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, which really deals with the reality that at one and the same time, we are renewed living creatures, and yet we are having to reckon with the reality of death all the time. And so we are, we are forced to live in, as Christians, a sort of already and not yet world. Now, for those of you who are uh, maybe a little bit into theology, you'll recognize that phraseology, already and not yet, because theologians use that to describe the condition of the Christian, that we have all of these promises that are given to us, and yet, in our experience of daily life, we still face the same suffering, struggles, and sins that, that plague everyone else. And so there's this already and not yet tension in the Christian life, illustrated, of course, by Uh, Michael J. Fox's character in Back to the Future trying to introduce the crowd back in his parents' day to Johnny B. Good from Chuck Berry and it just seems like they don't get it and so of course he says one day, one day your kids are going to love this. It was him trying to bring something from what will be back to that time. And indeed, this is the tension we face. So here's a little context for the passage. Paul is in the midst of explaining the posture one takes as a Christian having both the treasure of the gospel, that's what he says in 2 Corinthians 4, while at the same time recognizing we're in bodies that are like jars of clay, that we're brittle, we're fragile, that, that we recognize our bodies are, are uh, prone to corruption. We all die, no matter who we are. And what is emphasized is that our perspective then needs to be uh, on the one hand, yes, cognizant of our true condition, but on the other hand, having our eyes focused on what is to come. In other words, to have an eternal perspective, as some might say. And, and of course, that's difficult to do. As James acknowledges, we see through a glass darkly or dimly. It's, it's hard for us to see in the midst of our circumstances sometime and to remember that indeed our destiny is for something much, much grander. Nevertheless, that is what Paul emphasizes here. So, a few motifs that he creates in this discussion. First of all, he describes us as being like tents waiting for the true temple. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, what I pointed out for you here in the pictures on this page is really the contrast between the tabernacle that the people of Israel carried around for quite some time and then the temple that was built by Solomon. And the reason I do that is because the word for tent here that Paul uses also can be translated tabernacle. There's this picture of the temporal setting that the tabernacle was. You always had to set it up and tear it down, set it up and tear it down wherever you moved. It was this temporal thing that wasn't going to last, but then eventually the people of Israel moved into the temple, this sturdy building that was suggestive of prominence and suggestive of permanence. Of course, we know that that temple did not end up being permanent. And so once again, the people of Israel and indeed us today as Christians are looking forward to a better temple or as Paul puts it, an eternal house made not with hands in the heavens, made by God himself. But nevertheless, that's the contrast we're in, the already and not yet. We recognize the fragility of our bodies, the temporal nature of our bodies, like the tent, and yet we know we're made for something better. We're made for an eternal temple. Second, imagery, second piece of imagery he uses, he basically says, we're like those with dirty clothes waiting to put on clean clothes. Maybe like angels with dirty faces, I don't know. Never seen the movie, just thought it was a cool picture. But listen to verses two through five. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Now we enter into the clothing imagery. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Incidentally, side note here, This is one of those verses that tells us that we are not going to shed our body when we enter the new heaven and new earth, but no, it's going to be modified. We're going to have new bodies, but nevertheless, we're still going to be who we are. We're just going to have eternal bodies. The mortal will be swallowed up by the immortal. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee or as a down payment. More on that in just a little bit. Third piece of imagery Paul gives us, we are like those in exile waiting to go home. We are those who suffer from nostalgia. I don't know if you know what that word means originally in the Greek, but it literally means like home, nos, and pain. It's this this recognition that all of us are longing for home. We're longing for this true and better place, and yet, we're aware because of the things we face that we're not there yet. We might be nostalgic for some place, but any of us who have been, when we go back to that thing we're most nostalgic for, have to admit and recognize that it doesn't always live up to what we remembered it would be. And so this is the imagery Paul paints for us, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. You see the tension there again for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So the picture there is basically, we're kind of like kids waiting to, in the, in the on the road trip. We're asking, are we there yet? We want to be there, and yet while we're here, we still are active. We still have things to do, as Paul will point out. So that's the tension we all live with. We all live in every day of our lives. We're We're exiled and yet we're longing for home. And yet before I go on any further, I need to point out this is even more why we are in this already and not there yet tension because it turns out all these things are already yours and mine in Christ. Look at the language of some of the other epistles or some of the other parts of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 3.16, what does it say? Do you not know that you are present tense, God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. Indeed, the Apostle Peter would call us living stones in God's temple. We already are that. Well, what about being clothed? What about replacing these dirty, sin-stained clothes with new clothes? Well, it turns out in your baptism, you already put on Christ. You already are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what about being home? What about being raised to new life? Well, it turns out, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, that you already are raised with Christ. Look at what it says. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And get this, this is completely crazy. And raised us, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice that in the English translation of these words, the translators very wisely have translated them past tense as if they've already been done to us. And that's because in Christ they have, we already are by faith in Christ recipients of all these things Paul talks about. And so that's the already and not yet. We're raised with Christ already, seated with him, and yet here I am, seated in this uncomfortable office chair. I am clothed in Christ, completely made and declared righteous in him, and yet I still go on sinning and falling short of the glory of God. And yes, I I am a member of the temple of God, and yet I'm in this body, this tent that's breaking down and getting ripped and torn and not suitable as it is right now. And so the question comes in light of what we've been given in Christ and yet the tension we feel in the already and not yet, how do we then live? Well, the Apostle Paul already said it, if you were paying attention, we on the one hand groan, but we're courageous. We groan, but we're courageous. I can't help but think of the imagery of uh, the Allied forces storming the beach at Normandy on D-Day, found here in this picture from Saving Private Ryan. No doubt there was incredible groaning going on as they saw their fellow countrymen and soldiers being mowed down by bullet fire, and yet they continued to storm the beach at Normandy, and eventually that led to their victory. This is the tension we feel. We groan, we acknowledge it's not what we what we're destined for in this life, and yet we storm on courageously. And so how do we live in the already and not yet? Well, maybe the best passage that emphasizes that is found in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. There Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Right now, present tense, through him who loved us. Paul says triumphantly, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, that's what it looks like. We live as if the war is already won, as if the enemy is already defeated, because yes, indeed, as Jesus said on the cross, triumphantly, it is finished. He meant it. He didn't have his fingers crossed. The war is won, and we are recipients of that victory, even as we battle our uh, battle out the rest of our days on this planet. And so how do we live in the already and not yet? Verses 9 and 10. So whether we are at home, heaven or away we make it our aim to please him for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one is done in the, each one is due uh, may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil since the christians ultimate judgment has already taken place at the cross of christ we need not fear judgment but in fact can eagerly look forward to the day of his coming knowing that it will usher us into paradise, finally, where there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, and no more pain. How do we think about the day of his coming? Well, in the meantime, we aim to please him, as Paul says. So, you know, as Chick-fil-A always says, my pleasure. Well, yes, the Christian says, my pleasure to doing the things of God. At least that's what the new man says, even if the old man still wants to come back to life and fight it. But nevertheless, the new man gladly says, amen, to what God says. And then finally, we long for our neighbors to be reconciled to God as well. We want to say, come with me if you want to live. And indeed, that is what we will talk about in part two of 2 Corinthians 5, when we look at the conclusion of the chapter, which talks about how this ministry of reconciliation plays itself out. We'll talk about that next week. But until then, I hope you have been blessed by our time together and by this Word of God that we've been able to look at. May God richly guide you throughout this week, and I look forward to seeing you next week.